the biggest, I think, drawback to intermittent fasting, even for those folks though. And so when I, when I say who have maybe some guidance on doing it the right way is getting enough protein. Um, so just preserving that lean body mass. And that's something we've started to learn. It was something that we sort of suspected and, and certainly, you know, sort of bore out in the studies was that when you looked at folks who were um, utilizing the intermittent fasting for weight loss, they were able to achieve weight loss successfully, but there was, um, you know, mostly lean body mass and not the fat loss. So Welcome back to Against the Herd, where we explore unconventional approaches that lead to unconventional results, and it's through interviewing unconventional guests. Today's guest is none other than Brooke Schneid, and Brooke will be on a few other podcasts as we go forward, as we learn and uncover more information. But just to give you a little bit of background on Brooke, Brooke is a registered dietitian, sports nutritionist, and a board-certified specialist in obesity and weight management with a master's degree in science and clinical nutrition and over 10 years in optimizing nutrition from everything from chronic disease management to weight management and sports performance. This was a phenomenal podcast. We learned a lot of information that otherwise is really kept from us, kept from the public, but she gets to see this in everyday cases with both her current practice, as well as just talking and discussing weight management or weight, weight issues with her clients. So I hope you enjoyed it a fraction as much as Nick and I enjoyed it. Stay against the herd. Let's get into this. Brooke, uh, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for taking the time. Obviously we've had conversations uh, before from your coaching practice and you know, I'd really love to start this interview with uh, a little bit of, tell us what you're, you're best known for and uh, your background and your education. Yeah, so, um, and first of all, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here um, and talk with you guys today. Um, so I am a clinical dietitian by trade, I'm a clinical dietitian, registered dietitian, nutritionist, all of the names apply. Um, so I, I work in a few different settings. Um, I work in a clinical setting where I counsel folks who are seeking weight loss surgery um, or just kind of seeking weight loss through medical supervision. I also work uh, um, in a contract sort of setting where I work with corporate professionals who are looking to incorporate healthy eating and lifestyle practices in, into their busy uh, work life. I also um, have a private practice where I see folks for anything from um, primarily weight management um, to chronic disease management and prevention, as well as sports nutrition, which is just kind of my side passion and really what brought me into the field of nutrition. Um, and, and yeah, so I work in a few different settings, uh, but mostly focused on the clinical management of overweight and obesity, as well as, um, helping, um, helping folks manage, uh, implement sports nutrition for optimal performance. And I absolutely love that. And so what I love to at least start at, and touch on as much as you want to, but how, what brought you into this field? Like what was the, what was the point at which you knew exactly this was the direction that you wanted to go in? Yeah, that's a good question, um, Bruce. And I get it a lot actually when I first started in the field because I, my undergraduate degree was in political science. Um, so as you can imagine getting into the field of nutrition, I got that question a lot, like, why are you here again? And, <laughs> and actually the, the truth is that it did take me sort of a I took a roundabout route. Um, but growing up, I, I was dancing from the age of two. So really from the time I could walk, I was dancing. Um, and went on to dance professionally. Um, I was um, a collegiate athlete, so I played soccer in college as well. And I think particularly as a female athlete um, it, with two really sort of sports, well, one art, fine art, and one sport um, uh, that were really competing in terms of nutrition, right? So I really struggled as a young woman trying to balance the nutritional needs of these two very different types of sports. One that was also like very aesthetic focused and, um, you know, used very long fiber muscles and one that um, required really a lot of um, carbohydrate fuel and, and a lot of short fiber muscles. Um, and so I struggled with that. And I think I just always, as a result of trying to balance those different needs, I always had an interest in nutrition. I was always reading about it and um, trying to learn things um, that would help. 
um, and struggled a lot along the way, you know, just, just not having the energy I needed as a young female athlete. And so when I went into college, um, I, I carried on, um, as I said, I played soccer and then I also continued dancing. Eventually I left the soccer team to pursue dance more full time. Um, and after college was sort of dabbling in sort of political science related fields, um, and not, not really excited about it. So, you know, I did sort of what every post-grad does is sort of think about like what I'm passionate about and what sorts of things I was reading in my own spare time. And so that's when I realized, oh, <laughs> nutrition, obviously, um, it's something I've always been interested in. It's just kind of been the common thread throughout all of my, you know, experiences and, you know, sort of, um, those formative years. So it was just later in life that I realized, oh, I can really make a career out of this um, and went looking for, you know, continuing education around it. I love that. And it's you brought up a number of times in there carbs. Right. And one of the one of the questions that has been always burning is and I don't know when it happened. When did carbs become the, the culprit to everything? Like when did it become the bad guy? Well, that's a really good question. And I think there's a few different ways to answer that. And I think um, the first one is sort of the historical answer or the historical story behind, you know, the vilification of fat, right, which is what happened first because of the, the high rates of heart disease in America. Um, and, you know, so there was really a push or a campaign for a low fat diet. Um, and I think, you know, as a result of uh, that push for a low fat diet to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, um, there was a sort of accidental increase in these carbohydrates. Now, I think that's something that's really important to point out is because in nutrition and, and you know, sort of interpreting nutrition research, people get really hung up on isolating these nutrients. But what you have to recognize is that when you eat less of one thing, you're always going to eat more of something else. And so, um, you know, so yes, there was was the replacement of carbohydrate, but of course, eating less fat and more carbohydrate didn't mean that we were eating, um, you know, more beans and lentils and brown rice and quinoa, right, or starchy vegetables, we were eating more of these packaged, processed, refined carbohydrate sources. Um, and so as that sort of low fat, fat craze took off, and over the years, the rates of obesity, you know, continued to rise. And so there was this sort of thinking that, well, uh, if the reduction in fat and the increase in carbohydrate was concurrent with this increase in obesity, then it must be the carbohydrates that are bad. Um, but that really totally misses the fact that these carbs were really poor quality. Um, and also, if you look at the increase in calories over that same period of time, right, that same period of time, I think that the most of the studies look at like from 1970 to 2008, um, you, you see that the calorie increase was about 500 calories per person um, in the United States, and only about 250 of those calories were increased carbohydrates. Um, so you could say that carbohydrates are about 50% to blame, right? So, um, so there's just a lot of different things that were going on there that conflated the picture. Um, and that's when I think, you know, carbs just started to be really vilified. Um, so that's that, that's kind of the historical piece. Um, but yeah, you just kind of layer in, um, I think, the 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 cultural pieces, too. Like I always say, you know, we have an, a lack of exercise. We have an, an inactive inactivity epidemic, you know. And so if you factor in the fact that, you know, consuming more of these refined carbohydrates with the way that lifestyle changed as a, a culture and a society in the US too, activity levels were going down at the same time, right? And the, the best way that we utilize those carbohydrate sources is also through increased activity. So, so again, just a multitude of factors, but I think it definitely started with that push for a low fat diet. That makes sense. And that's fantastic historical context. Um, what's your take on keto? I, I know a lot of people may be familiar with that as well. Um, I personally use that and, and it, it worked for me, uh, you know, but I also understand that it can lead to, you know, disordered eating. People can hate it. They can be under this constant stress of it as well. So, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've heard both positive and negative. Uh, I'm just curious your take on, is it a useful tool for all, only some in certain scenarios or, or you know, where are we at? Yeah, I mean, I think um, moving away from the science or just kind of separating myself from the science a little bit, I can say that in practice, I am not generally a fan or a proponent of a keto diet. 
Um, and I think that's mostly because of what we end up seeing over the long term, you know, as is the case really with any sort of restrictive dietary approach is that if it's not sustainable, it usually backfires in some way. And the way that it backfires for keto and for most people is an elevation in you know lipid panel, right? Like whether it's total cholesterol, triglycerides, LDL, um, and, and that's obviously a real concern given that atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the US as far as I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. <laughs> um, so, you know, that that's a significant concern, especially for folks who may be utilizing a ketogenic diet for weight loss if they're in, you know, if they are struggling with morbid obesity. And now we have a temporary you know, significant, even that's fine. I'll, I'll give it that. But if it's a temporary weight loss with an increase in lipids, then I think that's more problematic than it is beneficial. Um, having said that, I, I fully acknowledge that from a scientific standpoint and, um, you know, and, and just kind of in other anecdotal situations, the keto diet can be very beneficial. And I think, you know, you might be an example of someone who is able to, who doesn't have to follow that over a prolonged period of time and kind of maybe has the knowledge and the experience to come off of it in, an, in a helpful way. Um, I certainly have used a ketogenic diet or what we would call a modified Atkins diet um, for neurological reasons um, in a clinical setting. Um, it's definitely not my specialty, but I have worked with neurological departments before to help implement that. Um, so there's absolutely no doubt that a ketogenic is beneficial for that population. And then I think there is a, a group of people that probably fall in between kind of the the category of people who we know it's beneficial for that sort of like neurological or epileptic population. Um, and then like maybe those with like chronic morbid obesity um, who, who may have that more negative long-term outcome. And then I think there's definitely a popula population of people who somewhere in the middle might benefit, you know, here and there for blood sugar regulation, or I do know some um, cardiovascular clinics who are actually utilizing the ketogenic diet um, in a medically supervised way. So I do think that there are a variety of uses for it, but for the general population, um, I'm definitely not a fan. We also see um, you know, in females, a lot of times testosterone levels end up going up. Um, you know, we have more testosterone than, than we do estrogen, but we shouldn't have as much as we do after something like an Atkins type or a keto diet. Um, so my, my general opinion is, is to avoid it if we can. No, that's fantastic. And you, you're doing a great job of separating, you know, the scientific mm -hmm. side from the, the practical mm -hmm. side as well, which I think, you know, many people will find useful. So, so thank you very much for that. And mm -hmm. uh, I guess while we're on the topic of, you know, fad diets that are, that are very common now, yeah. I'm curious your take as well on intermittent fasting, right? We've heard a lot of research about that, how that can have, you know, some neurological effects as well, which um, again, super interesting with the keto diet, as you mentioned, um, and just goes to show how all-encompassing nutrition is uh, you know, for the whole body, right. including the mind. But curious, again, similar question, curious your take on, on intermittent fasting, tool that many should be using or uh, you know, potentially uh, better than it seems. Yeah. I mean, intermittent fasting is different, definitely one that I would keep in my purview that I would say is always on the table. Um, intermittent fasting, as you probably know, you know, Fasting is an umbrella term, but intermittent fasting is also a very broad umbrella term, you know, whether it's um, like a 24 hour fast could still be considered an intermittent fast, you can have alternate day fasting, which would be considered intermittent fasting. And then you have, you know, the most popular, you know, 16, eight hour, um, 16, eight um, intermittent fast, it's the one that most people implement when they're experimenting with intermittent fasting. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I do want to just make that clarification because I think there are some some different implications, both near term and long term for those different types of or approaches to intermittent fasting. But to speak to like the, you know, the 16-8 um, approach um, specifically, I would say what's important for folks to know is that the way that that works for weight loss is through calorie restriction. Um, and that's neither good nor bad, but it's just a fact of the matter that what seems to be the mechanism there is that it's ultimately just another form of calorie restriction. Um, and so if that works for folks, again, over the long term, a lot of, um, you know, corporate professionals, for example, that I work with find it really hard to, to get breakfast in in the morning. Um, and so there, there are folks that that just kind of suits their lifestyle and it's a natural progression for them to, to try the intermittent fasting. And, and I think supporting folks in, um, in doing it the right way um, who may be able to, to sustain that for the long term, it can be a great tool at restricting calories. 
Um, the biggest, I think, drawback to intermittent fasting, even for those folks though, and so when I, when I say who have maybe some guidance on doing it the right way is getting enough protein. Um, so just preserving that lean body mass, and that's something we've started to learn. It was something that we sort of suspected and, and certainly, you know, sort of bore out in the studies was that when you looked at folks who were um, utilizing the intermittent fasting for weight loss, they were able to achieve weight loss successfully, but there was, um, you know, mostly lean body mass and not the fat loss. So not the fat tissue loss. So um, that's especially problematic, I think, you know, as you get into the older years, but it's still problematic for, for young folks who may be more active and really looking for, um, you know, for a different, you know, a different outcome in terms of, um, you know, lean body mass as well. Um, it gets especially complicated to achieve the amount of protein that you would need on an intermittent fasting diet as well, because, you know, we, we know that there's a bit of an uptake threshold. Um, so in other words, you know, you, you don't really want to be getting too much protein in at one time. And so if you have this restricted feeding window, you may still be in a position where you have to eat more frequently within that window in order to get those protein needs met, right, to offset that loss of lean body mass. So um, so yeah, while I, while I'm always, you know, I always have like my antenna up, um, high whenever someone is interested in implementing the intermittent fasting approach. Um, I think it can be a great tool and it's one of the, it's one of the approaches that I've seen again, just to be most practical for folks that 18, I mean, that 16, eight anyway, version of it. Understood. Well, we, you just easily led into the, mm -hmm. an, another, uh, my favorite macro, the one I was, I was planning on asking about protein. Um, so you mentioned again, intermittent fasting, it may be tough for people to get in their, you know, the protein they need. Mm -hmm. How does one couple questions, how does one determine what their protein intake should be? Mm -hmm. And what does that, uh, distribution look like, you know, should it be weighted more heavily, um, night versus morning, um, you know, every few hours or, or, you know, how does that look? Yeah, so I think, um, well, first to kind of understand a, a person's protein needs, um, you know, there also there's a big difference between protein to prevent deficiency and optimal protein intake. So I think, um, especially to support lean body mass, and generally, I think that's not well understood, but I would say generally what's recommended now is a gram per pound. Um, of body weight, of course, if we have, you know, access to body composition data, you know, we can, we can target that a little bit more specifically with lean body mass um, information. Um, but I think for most, for most. And is, and is that same, sorry, is that same male and female or is it different depending on sex? Yeah, same, same one gram per pound for both males and females. Um, and obviously, if you're someone who has, you know, significant level of activity or, you know, it can, it can change, it can shift, right, based on what your ultimate goals are and your needs can change even at baseline just based on, you know, um, how active you are and the types of activity you're doing. So I will, I will caveat it with that. But um, that's kind of the, the general recommendation would be a, pound, a gram per pound of body weight. Um, and so, as you can imagine, you know, it can be pretty easy for folks to, you know, to, to, to get upwards of like 120, 140, uh, grams of protein a day. And if you only have eight hours to do it in, um, that can be very difficult. Um, and yeah, so I would say that threshold is generally understood to be, we used to say like 32 used to be sort of the position statement. Now I think it's a little bit more comfortably up around 40, I think the range is like 30 to 50, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so we tend to kind of focus right in that 40 gram range. Um, and so, yeah, so you can see 40 grams multiple times a day to get that protein in and can be really difficult. Um, and in terms of how we like to see that spread out, I'd say um, as consistently across the course of the day as possible. Um, and mostly that just has to do with that uptake threshold, right? Because if you are trying to get more than 10 and, and you know, less than or equal to 40, um, then you usually are forced to spread that out. So what we don't want to see is, is what I think um, some people fall into, especially with a fasting approach, whether it's that 16-8 or even though uh, like a 24-hour fast, is that you end up with this one meal usually at the end of the day that has that large bit of protein. And maybe it's a good lean source of protein. And maybe there's lots of vegetables at that meal too. And you can get it all down because you're super hungry. You haven't eaten all day. But we're not utilizing all of that. So I think, um, you know, there are... Um, benefits to spreading it out consistently across the day, even if that threshold didn't make it difficult. But those would be, in my opinion, or, or I think, um, you know, the, uh, yeah, I guess well, I'll say in my opinion, um, 
that becomes impractical. Um, um, yeah, I mean, well, how could I say this? So there are benefits to getting it consistently that are not supported by evidence. That's what I'm trying to say, right? So I would still recommend that even if that threshold didn't exist, that it would still be beneficial from a practicality standpoint because you might be more hungry. You might not have stable energy levels. You, you might not have stable blood sugar levels um, if you have this protein spread all out. So protein, because of its role in stabilizing appetite um, and stabilizing blood sugars, there is a practical benefit to spreading that out. Um, the research would say otherwise. The research would say probably as much as as long as we get more than ten and less than forty, um, that we're okay. But again, from from the intermittent fasting standpoint, that would kind of necessitate that consistent distribution anyway. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, that, it's phenomenal. So, two questions in there on the same topic is: Is there diminishing returns from having too much protein in? And then the second one in there, when you take now that our world is in a sedentary lifestyle, is getting the same, is, does that protein still need to be the, the exact same, even if you're, you know, you're barely getting out, like sometimes maybe you're unable to, you're barely able to get a walk in, mm -hmm. in the workday. Yeah. I mean, so, so to answer the first question, I think yes and no, um, assuming calories are are equal right then i'd say there's not necessarily diminishing returns from getting a higher percentage of your calories from protein so like spoiler alert it's okay to do low carb diet um and have a larger percentage of calories coming from protein i think the important thing would be that you're utilizing that hopefully if you have you know smaller births spout you know smaller amounts of protein maybe as a result of that you know it may not be contributing to muscle protein synthesis it may be actually contributing to glucose um production um and that's okay you know again like if if all calories are equal um but if you if you have goals that are specifically around building lean body mass then you need that protein to be supporting that muscle protein synthesis. So I think at that point, you know, you will probably see some diminishing returns if you're just having excess protein, you know, in one sitting. Um, so I would call that diminishing returns um, because that just starts to sort of present as excess calories. And if you're trying to lead, build lean body mass um, and manage weight as well, then, then that, that, that complicates things. Um, the other question you asked was about protein goals for, for a less active population. Um, and, um, I would still, I still do recommend a gram per pound. Um, most of the time, because of when we look at folks who are inactive, I would say they, they, you know, if they are also, uh, overweight or they have obesity, um, then their calorie needs would still be higher than most. And so, you know, usually when we're calculating protein requirements, um, and there's a, a number of different ways to look at it, but I think looking at what that one gram per pound is what it equates to from a from a quantity standpoint and then also looking at as a, as a per percentage of calories now we don't really look at we don't really make protein recommendations as a percentage of calories anymore you might be familiar with like at least 20 percent you know standard 20 percent diet we don't really look at it that way but i think you know in, in the clinical setting and using clinical judgment that's always a good cross check like where where is that going to put us and is that going to be practical um, but most of the time, it still puts us well within reason in terms of how we might distribute the rest of those calories. So I think both from an optimizing health and longevity standpoint and supporting the lean body mass, um, as well as, um, you know, uh, just balancing calories, I think that it still makes sense to use that one gram per pound in most cases. Now, when you look at like the morbidly obese population, um, you know, that often is not feasible. So either in those cases, I try to get access to body composition data, or we use a much more <laughs> crude uh, calculation, which is um, ideal body weight. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a simple calculation, plus or minus 10% for stature. And then, so sometimes I'll start there and again, look at that. What does that number give me? And then what does that look like as a percentage of calories? And usually we can get a good happy medium, but, um, but that's a good question in general. I would still go for a gram per pound. Understood. And, and so <laughs> oh, I, I wanted to switch. 
Nick, we could cut some of this out, bro, but mm-hmm. did you want to stay on the same topic? Just uh, on the same topic. Uh, yes, on the same topic. As somebody who's uh, incredibly busy, as I'm sure many of our listeners are, um, I rely on protein shakes uh, to get that protein intake. Um, so you've already informed me that my practice of having a giant protein shake in the morning is probably less split up into two or three. Um, but curious your thoughts on, is that okay, right? If somebody is busy and having two protein shakes a day, are there uh, benefits to that? Also curious if you have any strong opinions on a whey versus plant-based protein, as I know there's been some, uh, you know, argument or discussion about that recently as well. Yeah, those are really good questions. Um, I mean, I would be remiss as a dietitian if I didn't let it, you know, if I didn't state it clearly that uh, I think it's always best to get your nutrients from food, right? Um, And uh, I'm always trying to move, you know, patients, clients, whatever in that direction. But as you can see, you know, in the context of intermittent fasting, because that's just what we talked about, and it's the perfect example of how a supplement often becomes necessary. You know, it's not just uh, a source of convenient protein, which I think is, you know, not to be scoffed at because that's a real practical concern for a lot of people. Um, But it also is necessary, you know, and I think there's a a lot of really good opportunities to be utilizing protein supplements um, in just about every population that I can think of. And, you know, if you'd asked me, you know, five, 10 years ago, what I thought about that, I probably would have said, you know, you almost never need it. Um, but I think in just the, the shift in, in how we think about daily protein requirements and I think um, just recognizing the difficulty with which people have meeting those requirements, protein supplements are great. Um, and now those can look a lot of different ways. There's, you know, ready to drink shake options and there's powders that you mix with other things. There's powders that you might use just with water and there's folks who use them more with smoothies. So I think it's hard to tease all that out. Like, I mean, everybody's needs are different. And I, there are some folks who I might say, you know what, I don't recommend a smoothie, but try that powder with water or low fat milk or something and we're good. Um, so yeah, it's kind of hard to speak to all of those different, um, you know, applications, but, um, but I do think protein supplements are, are, are useful. And as far as, um, as far as what, what the other question, as far as whey versus plant, whey versus protein, plant animal versus yes, plant of course, protein. that's one Bruce probably knows. That's one that I love to touch on because, um, I work in a setting, of course, one of the settings in which I work is, is in a morbidly with a morbidly obese population. And in, in preparing for weight loss surgery, immediately after weight loss surgery, um, protein supplements are used almost exclusively. Um, but I think also it's true for, for active individuals, for people that are seeking protein supplements, it's often something that they plan uh, very strategically to utilize on a regular basis. So my biggest concern when it comes to protein powders is heavy metal contamination because about, oh gosh, it's been less than a decade now, but there was a good body of research that showed that protein powders were um, you know, hev- heavily contaminated with heavy metals um, or persistently showing up to have high levels of heavy metal contaminants. Um, and so, you know, there's some clinical questions around like, well, what is the cutoff and what do we need to be worried about? And we compare to sort of, you know, every state has different guidelines as what, what's acceptable in their products. Um, and so, but I think again, like if you're utilizing a protein supplement every single day and you know that it has this heavy metal contamination, then that's even more problematic to me. I don't think we want to shuffle that aside and say, well, you know, a little bit of heavy metals is fine. No, I think that's not okay. Right. If we're using it every single day, that's going to build up and cause problems. So, um, so I started, you know, there was a um, nonprofit organization that actually grew directly out of that organization, out of that research called the clean label project. Um, and they used to do a really good job of reporting on and testing um, protein powders. Um, I've had a little harder trouble accessing their database. I think it's under construction or whatever. But for years, I, I was keeping up with their testing. And so they would, they would you know, publish um, the top five that tested the cleanest, the lowest level of heavy metal contaminants, and then the, top f- the lowest five, right? So the ones that had the highest levels of contaminants. And we learned some things just trending in that in the in those uh in those reports and one of the one one of the things was that plant-based and organic protein powders always trended higher in heavy metal contaminants um and so as you can imagine that raises a big red flag because you usually have 
a captive audience when it comes to protein powders, folks who are in, interested in doing something healthy, who want to, um, you know, yeah, promote wellness in their lifestyle in some way. So that's problematic. Um, now, not all of them, I should say, but that was the trend, right? Um, and then you have the whey-based whey protein powders, which just, again, they, they, um, they are not plant-based. Um, some of them are organic, but um, most of them seem to test a little bit better. But, you know, again, even across the board within the whey-based and the, and the plant-based, you know, you could see some variety in heavy, heavy metal contaminants. So number one thing I tell folks is, is let's be sure that we know what you're using if you're going to be using it on a regular basis. Um, and so, you know, there's a few kind of go-tos that I typically share. Um, but that's just a heavy metal contaminant piece. Number two, um, you know, let's, let's recognize that, you know, plant-based proteins can be effective. And so if you're vegan or vegetarian and you need to go that route, let's not, let's recognize it. That's perfectly fine. In general, I do rec recommend whey. Um, that's because, you know, in my sports nutrition work, it's a more fast acting protein. And so it's usually more effective for that muscle protein synthesis and the way that people are using it. Um, and also, in the surgical or clinical setting, whey is better for gut bacteria. Um, so it usually helps with, you know, optimizing recovery and, and sort of, and those kinds of things. So I usually do recommend um, whey-based protein powders and always let people know who have lactose intolerance that if you go with whey protein isolate, it can be suitable. So, um, so yeah, I'd say those are sort of the main, main considerations in terms of like whey versus plant-based um, I think that kind of covers my thoughts on the protein powders or supplements. Uh, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal answer. And just <laughs> one quick follow-up on mm -hmm. that. Um, would you mind naming some of the sources where people can look up the, those heavy metal contaminants? You named the Clean Label Project, but I, like I'm sure uh, many of our listeners, am guilty of uh, you know Amazon reviews uh, being, <laughs> sure. my, you know, oh, there's somebody two reviews down said is contaminated. Or I look somewhere else, which, as we we all know, is not based uh, necessarily in any fact. Yeah. Um, so, what what resources, if you have any that you could name, could could somebody use to make sure that they're you know, ingesting clean sources of protein? Yeah, I love that you're asking that because I think third party testing is kind of becoming like this ubiquitous claim that that supplement protein powders use now because people are kind of onto it, right? Um, but it's important to know that third party testing doesn't necessarily mean it's being tested for heavy metal contaminants. So, um, so that's a really important distinction. Um, the Clean Label Project, as I said, um, I'm not sure what's going on with their website, but it is normally um, accessible under the website puremarket.com. Um, you can also visit their website at cleanlabelproject.org, um, and um, and they have like some white papers uh, accessible there, and um, and I think some products available there as well. Limited database, I guess you could say, and then um, and then Clean Label Project does now have a certification that they are um, like accrediting products with. So you can actually look for the Clean Label Project. Um, you know, icon on the different products. Um, the other two that I usually recommend are NSF, um, Informed Choice, and Informed Sport. So those are, you know, labels that you can look for on the protein supplement itself that will let you know if it's been third-party tested that includes heavy metals. Um, there's actually Informed Sport and Informed Choice. One of them includes heavy metals and one of them doesn't. I don't remember which is which, but they're both really pretty um, uh, pretty good to look for anyway. Most of the time when one is there, the other one's there too. <laughs> I feel like Brooke, I feel like Nick and I are just going to like fight over how many questions we can ask you <laughs> in, a, in an hour time. Sure. When, so shifting, shifting gears, actually, this has been a burning question. Carnivore diets really became popular recently. Why? And can you give us the breakdown of like what's happening and what what is like what are the benefits and is that a sustainable diet mm -hmm. i cannot tell you why i don't try to understand <laughs> um i think that is one of the ones where i'm like absolutely not um yeah i mean well you you know as a dietitian too you know there's there's just some things that i you know i don't like waste my time reading but um you can imagine the the thought process when you when you think about you know um, you know the the campaign against vegetables having toxic compounds or not eating beans and legumes because of leptins or you know so I think it's it's always derived by some 
nutrition reductionism. Like I think if you've heard that term, right, it's this idea that we are reducing the components of food to their reductionist parts, right? Which is just not the way that we consume foods. We consume foods as, uh, you know, all the different compounds have this symbiotic, you know, relationship. And we know that they interact in a unique way inside the body. So, you know, it's just not the same to try to isolate these, these different elements. And I think that, you know, that's kind of probably where it comes from. And um, I think it's very misleaded. I think the folks who are following it are, are, yeah, just very misguided, unfortunately. Um, There is just no way that you could justify eliminating fruits and vegetables and plant compounds from a diet and expect it to be helpful over the long term. And I know that there's been enough... um, you know, there's been a, there's been enough of a like nutritional consensus around that, that, you know, I haven't really investigated it further, but yeah, that I'd say that's the one that I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, try to be sensitive to what works for different folks, but that is not something that, that has, is any way going to be healthy. Yeah. And, and, so, and I, and I agree with that and it just makes sense looking on the outside in, but it, you bring up another, just as you're talking, right. Where do you think we're missing the boat from an educational standpoint on just understanding diets? Because we will get influencers that are mm-hmm. just coming in that, that are that are ripped and then they're saying one thing. And then we also I, I don't know your I'd love to understand your your take on the food pyramid. Mm-hmm. Where where do you think what would you like to see different in terms of the information that's starting out at a very young age to what we're seeing now for adults and and in working environments? Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head, right? Which is starting at a young age. And so if if you were to ask me, where are we missing the boat from an education standpoint, it's just with young kids, right? I mean, um, there is a way to talk about nutrition, I think that can be, you know, positive and educational. Um, and I, I think that that's where the problem lies, right? I can't tell you how many times a day you know, I have the conversation around what defines a meal, right? Like, what is a meal? How do I think about creating this plate? And, um, you know, I'm happy that we've kind of moved from the pyramid to the plate. I'm not sure if you're aware, that's kind of the choose my plate is is sort of more of the, the modern day pyramid. And I think in a lot of ways that is more useful. But I think, again, like how, you know, you have a lot of these and, and they're they're sort of less they're sort of maybe uh, less popular. The media talks about them less nowadays, but all of these like edible garden and, you know, school um, garden educational programs that were implemented, you know, um, Alice Waters out in California is famous for um, Chez Panisse restaurant. And she started this edible schoolyard and many other people did this similar type of educational program for kids across the country where, you know, they educated kids around nutrition, but they did that with the help of a garden showing them where their food grows and all of that. And the outcomes that they were measuring, um, you know, didn't just relate to to health and nutrition, they related to, you know, IQs and, and testing and um, reading and those kinds of outcomes that are more directly related to the classroom. So I just think it's, it's so obvious that we need some basic nutrition education at, you know, in, in the younger years. And, you know, maybe it's not, you know, in elementary school kids, I don't know, but I think it definitely needs to happen, um, you know, in, in, in the younger years. Um, and so I, th- I think just the fact that that's not happening um, is the biggest gap that I could say and, and exactly how that's done. I'm not sure, but you know, so much of this emphasis on doctors don't get nutrition education is to me not productive because doctors are doing medical care, right? I saw someone said recently, like, you know, trying to harp on doctors, not having, t- um, you know, a, a nutrition, enough nutri- nutrition education in medical schools, like, like getting on a dietitian for not having enough education and writing a, med- a, a prescription for a medication, right? Like, that's not our job, right? Um, and so I just wish that we would move away from that harping on doctors not having nutrition education and start recognizing, you know, dietitians and nutritionists as being the experts um, and starting to, to, to take that a little bit more seriously because that gets at your point too about like social media and influencers and this misinformation comes from, you know, comes a lot from, this is a whole nother conversation. I don't want to get on a tangent, but um, you know, there, there has also been historically lack of regulation around the term nutritionist. And so there is confusion because anyone in some states, it's getting better in others, 
But in a lot of states still across the US, anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. And you could open a practice tomorrow. Bruce, you could say, I'm a nutritionist, come see me for nutrition information. And anyone in the lay public wouldn't know that you have no background or education or credentials in nutrition. So that's that's also just a, a big part of the problem. So so yeah, I guess generally I wish we would move away from, you know, kind of harping on the doctors not having that education and instead shift our focus on providing the letting registered dietitians provide the education in the younger years. Um and yeah, how that would be done exactly, I don't know. But like from my experience and anecdotally in clinical practice and in counseling day in and day out, I think we just need to talk about foods at the most basic level, um, you know, and, and touching on the pyramid and the, the plate and stuff like that. I think um, one of the big misperceptions about nutrition just generally is that we don't know what a healthy diet looks like. And I just think there's nothing further from the truth. So we could argue like, you know, semantics and like a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that, but we, we know, and we have known, and their studies are there for a really long time, what the basic fundamentals of a healthy diet are, right? Like lean protein, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, like that's it guys, right? So I think we do have the opportunity to at least start to give that basic education um, a little bit more seriously, uh, you know, in, in the childhood or early adolescent years. Fantastic. And I think you touched on something uh, that I want to explore a bit more. It's a bit of a, a meta question, mm -hmm. but how does somebody find and engage with a nutritionist? I feel like some people might be concerned, you know, oh, this is crazy expensive. That's for, you know, famous people. Mm -hmm. um, or they might think, you know, hey, I'm just struggling to lose a couple pounds, but I don't have a full blown eating disorder, or at least think I don't. So, you know, the nutritionists are for those people. I'm just going to tough it out here and, and keep, you know, reading stuff online by myself. Mm -hmm. um, so could you go a little, you know, how does somebody find a, a registered nutritionist that's not just throwing up a sign um, like Bruce would in your anecdote? Um, <laughs> and what is what is a typical engagement look like, you know, maybe with somebody who's not on the, the morbid obese side, which you specialize in, but maybe a more, you know, person on the athletic side or some a more lay person who wants to you know increase performance or hit some goals yeah that's a really good question um so first of all i, I do just kind of want to reinforce that what you would want to look for first of all right that's important is like you would want to look for a registered dietitian and and because of that licensure issue and the question around nutritionist that has been changed so now a registered dietitian can opt to call themselves a registered dietitian or a registered dietitian nutritionist or if they call themselves a nutritionist, they should still have the RD credential accessible. So you should still see that. So that's the first thing is you wanna make sure that who you're seeing is the credentialed professional and that would need to be an RD or an RDN. Um, and in terms of how to access them, I think, you know, I always tell folks, um, you know, to go to eatright.org, which is uh, the, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics professional organization and you can, um, you know, it's, it's not a comprehensive database, but you can like look up by location or specialty um, on that site. So that's one resource where you can get some names and numbers of, of practicing dietitians in your area. Um, and then the other thing is to go to your primary care physician or go to where you receive medical care, because you would be surprised um, how many medical practices have dietitians on staff, whether it's in their internal medicine um, clinic or they have a weight management clinic or they have, um, you know, a cardiovascular dietitian in their cardiovascular department or an endocrinology department might have a certified diabetes education, uh, educator who's also a dietitian. So there are um, dietitians accessible usually in, in some shape or form in the practice. And if not, they may be able to refer you to one. Um, a lot of insurance plans are covering um, nutritional counseling. Um, some have specific medical di diagnoses that you would need to have, but a lot don't. So I think it's all, another uh, great resource would be just be to call your insurance company and ask, you know, who's in network and, um, you know, who can you contact because they should have that information as well. Um, I'll add one more thing to that, not to overly complicate things. Um, but I do think it's important to find a dietitian that specializes in what you're looking for. Um, because we are a specialized profession, right? We have dietitians who, you know, there, there are, most dietitians can do basic nutrition counseling, but if you are, you know, interested in lowering lipid levels and you want to reduce cardiovascular lift, you, you might look for a dietitian that specializes in cardiovascular disease, or likewise, if you have diabetes or 
Um, you know, probably more specialty requirement would be something like GI, if you have IBS or IBD, you have one of those types of conditions. So, you know, again, seek out a dietitian. A lot can do, you know, chronic disease prevention and medical nutrition therapy, as we call it. But if you have a specialized condition, try to see if you can find a specialist dietitian as well. Fantastic. And so I want to shift gears because we, we talked, we touched on just athletes mm -hmm. and then you being an athlete as well. One thing that's very common, it's been talked about in boxing. It's been talked about in the UFC is weight cutting mm -hmm. and how weight cutting has just been how, you know, it's almost a, I mean, some people are dying from this. Mm -hmm. Can you explain one, the, the, the elements that are at play when you are weight cutting, mm -hmm. the potential risk, and just what's going on in your body while you're doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 approaches to weight cutting tend to vary a little bit just depending on the sport. Sometimes that weight cutting, I think, is a little bit more chronic in, in like some of the track and field athletes or in gymnasts, for example, that might be a little bit more chronic restriction. Um, whereas if you look at maybe like the wrestlers or, or you know, other uh, folks in that sort of, I don't know, would you, would you call it discipline, um, you know, boxing and things like that, I think that tends to be a little bit more acute weight cutting, right, where it's like the day of or day before. Um, so, so the ramifications are a little bit different. But um, you know, you have usually some severe form of calorie restriction that's going to be much more problematic when that calorie restriction is more chronic. So maybe less of an issue for the boxer or the wrestler, but a very serious issue for the track athlete or the gymnast, right? Especially females. Um, there's some significant re reproductive, you know, issues there with amenorrhea, you know, no longer having the or seizing the menstrual cycle for periods of time. Um, and then, you know, so the calorie restriction is one element. And then you also have um, dehydration, which becomes, you know, a real, a real problem as well. So I think, again, probably more often you see that with um, the class, the weight class type of sports like wrestling and boxing and stuff, and not so much in, um, in just like the track athletes and the gymnasts, as, as, as I'm using those examples, just because those are not weight class events, there's just seems to be a slight advantage or there's thought to be that advantage um, uh, with a, with lighter weight. So, um, so those are, I think, like the two main nutritional concerns um, as a result of that. Yeah, so I think, I think you have the methods of producing that, that weight loss. Um, and again, like calorie restriction, um, you know, dehydration is another one. Um, and then of course, sometimes you see like the excessive exercise so I think, again, I think that it's more problematic for those who that is seen in a more chronic way versus those that it's seen in acutely. Um, and I think also, I don't know this to be true for sure, but my, of course I know for sure that, um, you know, female athletes tend to be affected um, really significantly. We have a term for that, the female athlete triad, where it's impacting their um, cycle, it's impacting bone health. Um, uh, and and can lead to eating disorders as well. Um, we also now know that there is, uh, you know, AREDS is a syndrome of like a chronic energy deficit syndrome. Um, and I don't know as much about that, but, um, you know, we are starting to, to, to understand more the, the chronic, I guess, side effects of, of those types of restrictions for weight cutting. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it's, it, it certainly does. And I, you know, I just think of, I think of the, the wrestlers that I went to high school with and it was, <laughs> it was just their, their, their diets when it was that time, it was just, it was all at once. It was a hundred percent and then they would dial it all back. And I just always wonder, like, I mean, switching it, be, being on a teeter totter and putting your body through that just, you know, can't, can't be healthy, but um, well, and as a, as a follow-up question to that, um, you know, scaling it back from that heavy teeter-totter, which we just talked about, mm -hmm. what about the people who cycle between cutting and bulking? A lot of people, again, males especially, who are trying to put on muscle mass or significant muscle mass, uh, it's very hard to do that without also putting on some body fat. So they bulk to get the muscle mass up, then they cut, you know, trying to preserve muscle mass uh, as they lose 
fat. Um, is that something, are, are there like recommended, you know, are there any formulas for how much you should bulk and cut like based on percentages of weight? Um, mm-hmm. Do you find that to be a, a healthy strategy, you know, overall long-term or is that something people should try to do for a more uh, short-term thing and then kind of s- stabilize or normalize somewhere? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I have a good answer. I mean, I definitely don't know the answer to whether there's a formula for how to do that. I don't work as much with that population, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if there is not, um, at least not an evidence-based one, because I would say that my my understanding would be that that's detrimental, right? Because it, it would fall into, I mean, depending on how frequently you're doing that and what that looks like in terms of how much you're bulking, how much you're cutting, I think that that would fall pretty squarely into what we would call yo-yo dieting. And that has a really detrimental impact on resting metabolism over the long term and, and, and how you, how you store fat and how you mobilize storage and all of that. So I think I would, yeah, I would classify that as a form of yo-yo dieting. And I think absolutely that would be detrimental. And I think, you know, if, if you just think about, you know, folks who are, you know, who have that history of, of yo-yo dieting, I can almost guarantee you that they're coming in, you know, years down the line, eating all the right things and doing all all the right exercise and wondering why they're not seeing progress. And most of the time it has to do with that long-term historical, you know, struggle, whether it's like, you could call it, you know, um, building and cutting, or you could just call it yo-yo dieting. But again, it's going to have that same detrimental impact over the long-term. So I think, I think that's really important because I see that a lot, um, you know, in a variety of different patient populations. I have a question on sugar and then second part to that is also caffeine. And it's because we are constantly consuming that and it's all around us. Mm-hmm. So my questions around it is you know, with sugar, we know this to be a drug and we know this to be addictive. I mean, what, uh, like what, but then, you know, good, there is good sugar, right? And then there's stevia, right? Mm-hmm. Can you just give us like a, a breakdown of, of, you know, what we should be doing, like as a consumer, or as a, as a practitioner of a healthy diet of like what we should be looking for in terms of a healthy amount on the sugar and then also on the caffeine side as well? Yeah, I think I, that's a good question. I'll talk about the sugar first. Um, so you often hear sugar, you know, demonized as a poison. Um, and I don't like to think of it that way. So I, I always try to remind folks like sugar is, is actually not a poison. Um, it's the dose that makes the poison, right? So, you know, we do have, um, some upper limits in terms of how we think about added sugar specifically, um, you know, just to kind of share the numbers that would be nine teaspoons for men, um, which is 36 grams of added sugar a day. And it would be six teaspoons for women, which would be 24 teaspoons a day. Um, you know, so, so I, and that's added sugar again, an upper limit, (laughs) we do not need to have any added sugar. Um, so I always tell folks, you know, it's good to just kind of have a sense of where you are compared to that number, because the big problem is the insidious nature of the added sugar, right? Is that we consume these products, not knowing that there's added sugar. Um, and when the nutrition labels changed, um, a handful of years ago and started to include the breakdown of sugar, to, you know, so that you could see that added sugar that helped a lot. But I think there still is a lot of, you know, confusion and there's a lot of, um, you know, a lack of transparency around added sugar. And so that's, that's, I think, the biggest problem. Um, I think also when you think about total sugar intake, whether we're talking about added sugar or not, I think it comes back again to carbohydrate and that, you know, inactivity epidemic. And then I think that the carbohydrates are fundamentally fundamentally meant to fuel our bodies. And that's not just, we weren't, we weren't meant to be sitting down all day, right? So I do think that one of the things you can do is find out how much you're consuming. Another thing you can do is get more active. Um, uh, as far as um, access, I think that's something that I talk to my patients and clients about all the time because um, you're right, we are perpetually bombarded with sugar, added sugar mostly. And if you have kids, you know this to be true from a very young age, it's it's everywhere, right? So um, we're constantly faced with saying no. And there is, you know, willpower fatigue is real. So I think that, you know, environment is really key. Um, I think, you know, we have the tendency to sort of put the burden on like willpower and self-discipline to do things like eliminate added sugar or cut calories. And 
um, really what we know to be true is that the folks who are successful are the folks who are setting up their environment to support those efforts. So I think just looking around and seeing where you have easy access, especially to those added sugar sources or just, you know, refined sugar sources um, is really important and just making sure that, um, you know, your, your environment is conducive to your goals, whatever that may be. Um, and certainly cutting back added sugar or eliminating it is an important one. Um, so did I answer all, everything around the sugar, I guess? Um, you sure did. Okay. Um, and then caffeine. Yeah. I mean, caffeine is, you know, less problematic. I, I mean, I think the most problematic thing about caffeine of it is that it usually comes like hand in hand with the added sugar right now. Right. So, um, you know, I have folks who, you know, who tell me, you know, all the time, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to cut out caffeine. Um, I'm, I'm like, you know, three weeks without coffee. And the first thing I say is, why? <laughs> Why? Coffee is super healthy. You know, you can, you can actually have protective benefits. Like there, there are tons of studies that show um, that, that uh, coffee in particular can be protective of like certain cancers um, up to five cups a day. So why? Why do you want to cut that out? You know, does it make you feel jittery? Are you not sleeping well? Okay, right. Um, but if it's all the added sugar, then okay, right? Um, but it's, I think it's really not the caffeine that's problematic. Um, from a nutrition standpoint, it's more so that it comes so, you know, um, tied with the added sugar, right? The lattes, the whatever, all of those drinks. Um, the only thing I think that's important to mention about caffeine is, is what we know about sleep. And I'm not a sleep expert, so I won't get into too much of that. But obviously, you know, I, I tend to try to have a pulse on sleep as a dietitian. Uh, there's some very direct and indirect implications that lack of sleep can have on nutrition, right? Uh, either it's how we mobilize storage or it's how, what kinds of foods we crave. For example, we know when our cortisol levels are elevated, we tend to crave sweets more often. So um, not getting away from the caffeine too much, but you know, just to kind of say that, I guess that would be the other sort of implication for caffeine is that if it is impacting sleep, then I think that that's, um, that, that's a nutritionally valid reason to reduce it. Um, but otherwise caffeine in and of itself, um, you know, isn't as harmful. Love that. And just real, uh, you can answer this very quickly because mm -hmm. I'm sure Nick wants to jump in with a question is, I'll, I'll give you an example. I came back from France and I bought an espresso machine mm -hmm. because I wanted to replay that sure. consistently. <laughs> And I count myself having like eight shots of espresso. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, so when we're judging, when we're talking about coffee, is coffee then espresso, or are you generalizing that as no, a I would say whole? That includes, I, wanna... I would say that includes espresso. I'm not sure how that would translate in terms of portion sizes. I haven't looked at the research in a while, but um, I mean, I would say it's probably pretty safe to assume like a shot of espresso is a cup of coffee, right? In terms of caffeine, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, well, Nick, you're in Miami. You tell us. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> but a Cuban cafecito from Miami has more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, and so, yeah, I would say that there probably is a threshold. But um, and, and maybe after that threshold, it's not that it's problematic, but maybe you don't see those preventive benefits. I don't know the answer, I guess. Makes <laughs> what? No, no ma makes sense. But it's helpful that I, I did not know in terms of, because I, I'm one of those people that I was just like, I'm taking a break from coffee. It's just been, it, it's been too much. And uh, now I want to go back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, if you see it impacting your sleep, that's a real problem, right? Or you see that you're not feeling well and can't focus because you're jittery. That's a real problem, not a nutritional one, but that's a problem. Um, but yeah, otherwise I always tell folks got a huge, high, high levels of polyphenols. And again, like some cancer protective compounds as well. So there are a lot of really healthful benefits, not just not harmful, right. But healthful benefits to coffee and tea. Understood. Well, we, we blew through again, more than I thought we would possibly cover. <laughs> um, I guess for me, kind of in closing, is there anything that you think people should know like any hot tips or any anything that you see as commonalities that you are telling your clients frequently um that we may not have covered today any any tips uh you know that you just quick little tips that you find are are useful for anybody who's trying to uh, improve their nutrition yeah i mean i don't know that these are groundbreaking but i can tell you that you know one of the things that i see most often that i just think is common across the board is 
don't try to change too much at once. And I think it's just human nature to want to find, you know, that, that quick, maybe it's not even a quick fix. Maybe it's just that you feel like you're taking a more monumental approach. Right. Um, and I, I, I see that, that, and I think the research shows us too, that that tends to lead to failure, right? When you try to change too much, too many things at once. And I think that's pretty in line with habit formation research as well. Right. But um, the best thing that you can do for your health and, you know, whatever nutrition related goals that you have is to start small um, and to, to find some way to hold yourself accountable to little changes. You're going to build confidence when you see that you're successful with those small changes and you're going to be in a position to build on that, which like that's a sneak peek of what you can expect um, working with a dietitian. I know I didn't elaborate on that. Um, but um, but to me, that's the number one thing is, you know, and I think that that's hard um, and from a from a counseling standpoint. It's it's yeah, it's just there's no easy solution. But that, that's a big thing is try not to change too much too soon. Maybe one to three goals that you can identify um, and take a look at what you're doing now as you determine those goals. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if it's um, a good example, but, you know, if you want to make some significant excuse me, significant financial changes. Let's say you want to save to buy a house. You know, the first thing that you need to do is you need to check and see what kind of financial situation you're in now to determine where you're going to, you know, what you're going to do next with your money, right? Or who you're going to get advice from. And I think that, um, you know, a simple food log, uh, you know, is, is not something that people use often enough. And Bruce knows I'm not a fan of tracking apps because I just think they're counterproductive. But I think just taking a, an approach like a simple food journaling approach, you know, is, is can, to lighten the burden a little bit of that, of that you know, that awareness and accountability and what it some, sometimes illuminates. Um, but I think that's really important, too. Is, is So don't do it too much too soon. Start with where you are, you know, by figuring out what your diet looks like now. Um, and just don't don't lose sight of the basics. Right. Like more fruits and vegetables and lean proteins like that's going to be pretty much the message, no matter which approach you take. I have, I have two speed round questions for you before we let you go. Okay. <laughs> and I can't believe this did not get brought up. Glass of red wine or skinny martini? Which one are you going with and why? Wait, but what's a skinny martini? <laughs> I don't what It's the, uh, so they have the skinny vodka and uh, just a dry martini. Okay. Um, I think, I think either one. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about like wine, I think the biggest problem is that five ounces of wine is not usually what people pour. But if we're comparing, you know, if we're comparing like a one and a half ounce, so like a shot of vodka, and we're comparing five ounces of wine, take what you enjoy the most and savor it. Um, because that's all you should have. <laughs> um, so you should Fair. have what you enjoy. They both have, you know, um, you know, pros and cons, but just make sure that that glass of wine is only five ounces because I think that's the biggest misconception. If you, if you didn't tell me and I just had to blindly choose, then I'd actually probably go for the martini just because of that, because a glass of wine at a restaurant or even at home usually is more like 10 ounces. So that's, that's, yeah, that's not comparing apples to apples. Got it. All right. Last one for me. Mm -hmm. Grass fed, grass fed beef or, you know, choice um, or select. Is there that big of a difference? Um, I guess it just always depends what lens you're using. I mean, yeah. And I, and I always think that practicality reigns supreme, right? So it just depends on where you are and what that next step would look like for you. I don't want to tell your average Joe that you have to eat grass fed, grass finished beef. Right. But a lot of times that is more nutrient dense and there's lots of other implications that I, that, that matter to someone like me, like maybe the sustainability of it. Cause I think you should eat meat, but let's make, make it so that, you know, we're, we're, we're continuing to sustain that. Um, I think the most important thing I would tell your average Joe is make it lean, make it a loin cut or make it a round cut because, you know, three ounces of a loin cut, 135 calories, three ounces of a ribeye, 300 calories. And all of those extra calories are coming from saturated fat that's going to clog your arteries. So, um, so I think that's step number one. And if you have the ability to go to something that's like grass-fed, uh, grass-finished, I think that's great because we do see um, some more nutrients there and it's better for the environment usually. Fantastic. Uh, I 
Brooke, I, I could not ask for a, a better podcast. Oh, I can't tell you as some, as someone that does the social media in terms of clips, it's, we're, we're going to have a month, maybe two months worth. Oh, great. Um, I, well, please cut out all the plugging my phone and not knowing how to get online. <laughs> the, that'll be in the blooper reel oh, when, okay, we, uh, when we make it big time. <laughs> what, um, how can we, uh, how can people get in touch with you? How can we, how can our viewers uh, really be able to soak in uh, mm -hmm. more of the information that you're able to provide? I don't know. <laughs> As you know, Bruce, I don't have much time. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I tell people I'm well savvy, well savvy B on Instagram. Um, I don't really share a ton anymore, but I'd love to do more. I also have a blog that I don't share on that much. So I always hesitate to give it out, but it's, it's well savvy B um, also. So I can always share that with you. Um, you know, I'd love to have the following maybe would inspire me to share more um but um but otherwise yeah i don't i don't um my work with better up like i don't source those members as you know so they can't really find me there unless yeah. well they could they could go on to better up and like pay by themselves but um and then in the clinical setting you know i would be able to see those patients unless they're in Virginia, Maryland, DC or like a state that doesn't have a licensure requirement i can i have seen patients like me because they don't have a licensure requirement, but obviously that's just too convoluted to share with your, your audience. So um, I would probably just share like my Well Savvy B IG and you can share the Well Savvy B website if you want. Um, I'm always trying to share more and every now and then I update like my favorite recipes and you know, every now and then I share things. Um, unless you think that's counterproductive, then I don't know what to tell you. Um, I'm on LinkedIn no. also um, and I have like a Well Savvy page there um, but you can find me on LinkedIn and I do have folks occasionally reach out to me by word of mouth for counseling on LinkedIn. So that's also a way that you could certainly reach me. Well, yeah. uh, we're, we're going to, we're going to blow up your Instagram and LinkedIn <laughs> account. So uh, stay tuned. Well, maybe you'll give me some inspiration to like find the time to do it. <laughs> this is important. Everything that this was a phenomenal podcast. This was a phenomenal interview. And Brooke, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, guys. It was super fun. And um, I haven't done this before. So it was good for me, too, just to kind of have the experience of how that works. Absolutely. Well, thank, thank you again. As uh, Just echoing Bruce, but we, uh, that, was, that was very enjoyable and, and tons of fantastic tips. Yeah, you're very welcome, guys. Good luck. Good luck with the podcast. I'll have to follow along. Absolutely, thank Brooke. You. And thank you for going against the herd. <laughs> <laughs>